Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, I'm continuing my deep dive into the world of digital content with the head of Unscripted at YouTube. Ben Rellis figured out the power of the internet early on. His digital short, I Got a Crush on Obama, in 2007, before Obama even became president, was a huge breakout success. It started what would become a fascinating career. Ben combined comedy and YouTube. We talk about the inspiration for that video that started it all and how Ben came to climb the ranks to now buying shows at YouTube from Kevin Hart, Demi Lovato, lots of digital stars with massive followings. There's a lot going on at YouTube now. And Ben biggest regret might become your biggest regret, too. Hey, Ben. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I, this is exciting. It's my first remote podcast. Um, I'm here. I'm here. I feel like I'm doing a live shot. Yeah. Back in my news days. I'm here at the Playa Vista campus of YouTube. That's right. And we're in a sound stage where many YouTube stars have done something, I'm That's sure. That's right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is uh, YouTube Space LA. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I usually start by saying how I have met the guest, and we met about 15 minutes ago. Yeah. Um, so we know each other really well. Sure. Um, Jen O'Connell introduced us, and she's we love Jen. She's yeah. the best at Lionsgate. Um, and I'm really happy to interview you because, you know, the whole thing about my podcast is, is talking to people on unscripted content. And, mm-hmm. and the reason that it's content is because, obviously, TV is not TV anymore. And the digital thing is something that I'm— Pushing, you know, I had on Josh Entman from Jukin. I had on Alex Shankman, who represents tons of digital yeah. stars. So this is like a conscious effort of, of really getting into the space. I think all the producers who have come up in a traditional way are all trying to figure out how to penetrate the space. And kind of like you figured it out earlier than most. Yeah, I would say I took a non-traditional path to Unscripted. Yeah. Definitely. So you, I was reading your bio, you actually have something in common with our president. What's that? You both went to Wharton, right? That's true. Yes, that's right. You're like, what on earth could I have in common with him? Uh, that's true. Yes. I think he went to Wharton undergrad. Right. But uh, claims he has some business. Yes, or I did. While I was at Wharton, I did shoot a video with him for an hour. So I did a very <gasps> short Donald Trump production. Okay, wait, we got to start there. Okay, I mean, sure. that didn't show up in any bios. This is your hidden past that That's you're right. trying to keep hidden, I, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I did audition to be on The Apprentice in season two. Just audition, like they came to campus, they talked to people. I'm sure they eliminated me immediately because I didn't really know what they're looking for on reality TV. So I was talking about, you know, being a team player. And all <laughs> like, you're out. you're out. Um, so I didn't meet him then. And then I was a writer on a show they do at Wharton, which is a comedy show every year. And because it was the 40th anniversary, we sent an email to Donald Trump. And he actually got back to us and said, yeah, come on the set and, you know, we'll shoot a little Apprentice sketch. And so we filmed with him for a little bit. And What was the sketch? Um, I think it was basically we were pitching him ideas for the show and he was kind of firing us one by one. But it was a little bit meta because he was actually frustrated that we didn't have cue cards ready for him and he felt like it wasn't a professional enough production. So while he was, the sketch was him being annoyed at us, he was actually pretty grumpy and not happy <laughs> with us in person. He didn't have his burger. And that's his right. Coke that's right. So time. I was kind of coaching him on why the thing was funny. And he was like, I don't know. This isn't how they do it on Letterman. Oh, that's awesome. Because yeah. I've heard the one positive I can say is that I've heard he actually does have a good sense of humor, but not that day. 
Really? I've never heard that. I, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, no, he was fine. He Look was at fine. the way he's running the country. It's, it's hilarious. Funny. It's funny. Yeah, every day is a new laugher. Yeah, no, it was uh, It was just a weird experience. We went into the fake apprentice set. I didn't realize until I got there that it wasn't a real boardroom. <gasps> what, what, what? Uh, right? You knew that. Yeah, right? I knew that. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. But anyways. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we, we filmed with him, and I do have that little video on YouTube of, of him firing me. And, uh, yeah, and Ivanka Trump was actually in some of my classes also because she was an undergrad while I was there. Really? Yep. Did you have any interaction with her? Not much. She used to go outside and smoke in front of the building between wow. classes. That was about I didn't it. know robots smoked. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you were already, so that was a YouTube sketch back in the day? It wasn't on YouTube at the time. Now, this was okay. in 2004, so okay. YouTube started in 2006. Okay. Uh, and then I put it up on YouTube afterwards, but... Uh, no, at the time, it was just for videos that went between these sketches that you do on stage, which are like inside jokes for, you know, people that are in school there and oh, would be okay. funny to anybody else. And, you know, we're just like kind of having fun with this um, show, which they do every year. And I think this was kind of the big celebrity moment of that show to have Trump come on. Yeah, well, for sure at that time. So you kind of so you were getting a business degree, but you were sort of loving comedy. Like, was your plan to always sort of merge those two worlds? Like, what or was there not a plan? Um, well, I don't think it was a plan, but I have tried to do both. So like, I I, I wrote a, a humor column in in college, like a weekly column, and then coming out of undergrad, I started a company, um, but still, you know, obsessed with stand up comedy and love comedy in general. Went to business school. I did do an internship um, with someone uh, named Rick Dorfman. Yeah, and manager. Yeah, yeah. So, and he was with someone named Mike Berkowitz, who now manages like all the biggest company names, and he's amazing. So, uh, I did that for a summer and helped them with some stuff that they were working on. Uh, but then, no, the job I had out of business school had nothing to do with comedy. I was just working at a ad agency, and then while I was at an ad agency. Because I had had a background in like trying to write these sketches, I started doing my own YouTube videos, and the second one did really well. And then from there, I basically have been doing nothing but YouTube since. So that was 2007. Right. So that was the crush on Obama. Crush on Obama. That's right. Well, first of all, let's hear a clip from that. Because I got a crush on Obama. So talk about the genesis of that video. Like why, where, what, who, how. Okay. I kind of uh, know the who, but I don't know any of the other stuff. Sure. So I was working uh, at an agency called Agency.com, which is part of TBWA, which is part of Omnicom. And basically my role there was in strategy. So they were having me research you know, Friendster and MySpace and Friendster. YouTube and just thinking about, like, how do brands use social media? Uh, and around the same time, uh, we actually did a video on YouTube as an agency about a subway pitch that we were doing. And that video actually got hundreds of thousands of views, but it had a lot of mixed reaction because some people felt like it was corny for an agency to open up the pitch process. Some people thought it was funny. Uh, but due to that, I started getting very interested in this idea of YouTube, that anybody, anywhere has an idea, put it up, and millions of people can see it. I, I still think that's really fascinating. So I was like, I want to make YouTube videos. I want to try this out. And the video that I made about Obama 
was, and I'm from Philadelphia. Initially, I had written a song called I Got a Crush on Chase Utley, which I thought was funny. <laughs> I do and, too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, he's I mean, you know, he's a good looking guy, from, especially in 2004. He still looks good. He does. So, yeah, so Chase Utley, I write, I kind of had this idea. So, wait, for the uninformed, he was okay, a Phillies good, right. player. <laughs> Chase Utley, uh, second baseman for the Phillies, still playing, hit a double last night for the Dodgers, but at the time, I think he was like MVP candidate. Yeah. And good looking guy. And I thought this would be funny to do a video about a girl that's obsessed with Chase Utley. Um, and then I was kind of different ideas I was thinking about doing. And I was thinking, well, maybe I'll do. Um, a different one uh, about, you know, a girl that's obsessed with uh, Jack Bauer from 24. And then I sort of feel like, well, if I'm going to spend all this time on this, it should be something a little bit, you know, more ambitious than that. And I was an Obama supporter and I liked him. This was in, it was actually 10 years ago, like this week. It was in May 2007. Yeah. And he, just to be clear, he was just a senator then. Senator, like, Had I he think declared he his candidacy? Declared his candidacy and, and was running, at, I think like Hillary was like 50% and he was at like 20% of the wow. vote. So uh, it was kind of a long shot for him to win at the time. And so there was this character, uh, Lonely Girl 15, which was one of the first ever YouTube phenomenons. And I kind of had this idea, I'll create this character called Obama Girl 15. She'll be obsessed with Barack Obama. And I'll keep coming out of these videos. And people will think it's funny that someone was obsessed with a politician. <laughs> then moved away from the whole idea of doing the, the, the vlog. Did a music video about Obama. And, uh, and and thought it would do well because I thought this will be something the news will want to put on the air is why is this woman obsessed with the president? And I was going to keep my name kind of off of it initially to create more buzz around it. And, and it really worked. Like we put out the video on YouTube and within 24 hours of being up, Jake Tapper actually was the first one to cover it for ABC News at the time. And once he picked it up, all the political blogs and then eventually MSNBC and CNN and NBC, they were all running it in their news cycle. Who is Obama girl and why does she love Obama and what is this all about? So we really were able to take advantage of a moment in time where like it's a year and a half for the election. There's not a lot to talk about. Uh, but, you know, you know, this is bubbling up. And that was a crazy election year with McCain and Palin and everything else. Oh, God. So who was Obama? girl? Like, I know somebody Ettinger, right, was the woman that Right. Played her, but who did you just pick her out of obscurity or was she? Uh, pretty, I wouldn't say out of obscurity. <laughs> oh, she's yeah, not. I mean, pretty much. Uh, I, I had the idea. Um, I wrote the song with someone named Leah Kaufman who sang it, and then we wanted to cast somebody to play this part. And I think I saw an interview with her on Howard Stern, and then from there found her email address. And at first she said she couldn't do it, and then uh, emailed me back and said, Oh, actually, now I do have availability. Let's do it. But it was very low. I mean, the whole thing was under 2000 bucks. Yeah, that was your own money, right? Yeah, my own money. Uh, and it, we shot the whole thing in like five hours. But Where? I did feel like it was all around New York. Like we shot it up at, um, you know, Central Park, a little bit on the subways, a little bit down near the Wall Street area. And we had a green screen room that a buddy of mine hooked me up. So did that video. Didn't think it would be, you know, a career changing video. But it really was because as soon as the video came out, it had a lot of attention and then at the time, a lot of different companies were getting funding to start online video networks. And then three or four of them reached out to me like, what are your plans for this thing? And then I quickly whipped up plans for this thing. I was like, well, this is the future of political comedy. It's interactive. <laughs> it's younger. It's, you know, and I'm obsessed with like The Daily Show and all that stuff. So it wasn't like I was, you know, trying to like, we're going to knock those guys out. But I was just sort of thinking, this will be different. It'll be for YouTube. And we'll do a political comedy network called that Barely Political and sold it to a company called Next Networks, which was started by a lot of people who had 
backgrounds in TV. And so you ended up running Nets to Networks, right? No, no. no oh, okay. No, no. Uh, Am I over? I'm like the Jewish mother of your resume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, you run Google now, right? You right? and Larry? That's yeah. you. That's not me. Uh, no, I, I was brought in initially just to kind of run this one channel because they had this strategy oh, okay. of having different channels verticals, for different niche audiences, verticals. I remember being really impressed when I walked in because they had this board that had 50 different networks. And it made sense to me. Like, this is a network just for people getting married and just for people who love indie filmmaking and just for people that love this and that. So that concept, which I still think is a great thing about the Internet, that all these different niche audiences have programming just for them. But that was kind of the, the basis of the company. And so I came in to basically run this channel and the comedy group. Eventually, I did oversee programming at Next New Network. But yeah, the initial project was just make Barely Political as big as you can. So what were some of the other things that you did for Barely Political? Um, well, it was kind of interesting because the first five or six videos, a lot of it was just trying to get on the momentum of this whole like Obama girl thing. Right. And, and that did work. Like there were days where I remember the Yahoo front page was like, is there an Obama girl video coming today? Question mark. Wow. So and you guys on, didn't even market it. Like it was just really organic um, or did you? No, no. I was because my background was in marketing. Okay. I was very much about kind of seeding this and emailing the Got blogs it. and building those relationships. And I did had you this, send it to Jake, by the way, the first like, is that how he picked uh, it up? I did. I did. Yeah. The Philly? Was there a Philly connection um, there? I, yeah. <laughs> like it was partially because I knew Jake Tapper a little bit, but partially I just built a list of 200 blogs and everybody who I would email to and tried to customize those. And I had this rock star uh, friend of mine, Melissa Klein, who had a background in PR. So she was always kind of pushing me on like, all right, if you're going to keep this going, like what's the there there? We need her to like not know if she's going to vote for Hillary or Obama. We need her to like switch over to the other side. So she did a good job of kind of keeping me focused on like how is there actually a story here? But the biggest story was really how is YouTube affecting the way candidates will be elected? Because yeah. this is, you know, kind of separate topic. But, you know, the first uh, elections for 200 years were all just campaign controls, everything about the message. They put out a TV spot. That's what you know. And then when Obama was running and Hillary and McCain, all of a sudden you had these videos like Will I Am's Yes We Can and the 1984 video. And people are putting up videos in support of candidates. And suddenly those are becoming more talked about than the commercials. So that became the bigger story, not does Obama girl like Obama. It was more about, you know, YouTube is affecting everything, music, comedy, and politics as well, sort of democratizing how people can participate. Speaking of which, this is a total sidebar to that, but I'm curious what you think, because I've always been convinced that if Hillary had done like a YouTube series or something digital, yeah. sort of like the circus, but just for her campaign, even right. if it was slightly propagandish, but felt like it was behind the scenes, I feel like yeah. that could have changed the narrative on her campaign because she was so right. tightly controlled in terms right. of what she showed the public. It's like how yeah. I don't know if you listen to Howard Stern, but he said like she probably would have won if she come on, she had come on my show. And I believe that's true. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah, I think that people like to see the real side of people. Uh, you know, there was the moment in Iowa in the 2008 election where she was crying. Yeah. And I think she got a, you know, people thought that yeah, that New was Hampshire. the reason she got a big bump. Oh, wasn't yeah, New it was in that diner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, I know all of this too well. And yeah. I just uh, nurse my wounds every day. Yeah. So, so, but it's an interesting point, which is that like it, 
it, you know, not just for politics, for everything YouTube has democratized. I mean, totally. look at Justin Bieber, you know, like had that, had YouTube not existed, Justin Bieber probably would right. still be in Canada working at yeah, 7-Eleven. Uh, probably. And there's all, yeah, every category. Damn, no. <laughs> uh, and also, yeah, it's a combination of getting discovered on YouTube, which right. there's definitely instances of people who put up a YouTube video and then suddenly they have a career. But then there's also just being able to sort of refine what you do with a live audience that gives you feedback. So you have people that have YouTube channels, they're putting up videos for years and they're getting really good at what they do because they're making stuff. And so, yeah, I have, I get very defensive about YouTube creators because that was what my background was. So I don't feel like when a YouTube creator is going to cross over and, you know, have like traditional shows and all that. Cause I feel like, well, they're reaching millions of people. They've built this on their own. They're really talented and it's exciting. You know, from, from my perspective, that some of those gatekeepers aren't involved now and in who's famous and who's not. I want to get back to your trajectory in a minute, but before I forget, having that background and coming up the way you did, do you feel like you have, you know, immediate radar for who's going to hit and who won't by seeing a video? Like, oh, you YouTube? Just, yeah, just like knowing what that it is, because uh. there's not everybody that's going to be, right. you know, I mean, and some of them, I'm like, what? You right. Know? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, probably my, yeah, I, I think that because I've watched so much YouTube, <laughs> right. sometimes I'll see a first video and feel like, okay, this is going to be a thing, even though this is the first ever, I don't know, epic rap battle, it gets 15 million views and you feel like, okay, I can see how they're going to do 30 or 40 of these and people are going to love it. And then, of course, there's other ones that, uh, you know, are one-offs and you feel like, okay, that's probably not going to turn into a series or anything which is like ongoing and, and it's just kind of a viral video. And that's something which is kind of interesting and maybe analogous to reality TV because in reality TV, you know, you talk a lot about like formats and on YouTube, those formats are so different, but they're still really important. Most of our most successful channels actually have really built consistent ways that they do their intros, their show structure. Um, some channels, which is totally fine, use YouTube as a place to experiment and try all different stuff. But a lot of the most successful channels have built a format that evolves a little bit, but is really consistent. So like, I, I listen to Phil DeFranco a lot. I don't know if you ever heard that name. It's I have like it. a YouTube news show. Oh, okay. My guess is he does, you know, 50 or 60 million views a month or maybe more. Wow. But, you know, on Phil's channel, the structure is the same every day. Welcome to the show. He talks about the most requested story. He goes through some things that he likes. He answers some viewer feedback. And he's been doing that for 10 years. It's not like it's viral videos. He's built an audience around a format. That's interesting. I, I, have you aggregated all the slime videos? Because this is... Oh, my gosh. My daughter I, made that this weekend. I mean... I don't know anything about it except that Well, I you need to believe, know yeah. because it's all my daughter watches are really? homemade slime. See, I didn't slime. even know it was How a thing. old is your daughter? Nine. Uh, same as mine. Okay, okay, so as you know, it's now the biggest thing. They've run out of Elmer's glue like across the nation. I didn't know oh, that. Oh, by the way, you will soon declare your house a slime-free zone. But I that's couldn't a believe my wife was letting Yeah, no, Emma that'll be this. her. That, two more times Jeez. and then she'll stop. The, the kitchen counter was like five <laughs> bottles of Elmer's glue, oh, totally. shaving cream, contact solution. Exactly. Oh, these. and by the way, your daughter's hands will turn red and dry. Like I had to bring oh, her to really? the pediatrician. Oh, they smell terrible. Powerball. Uh, they smell they like glue. Love it. I mean, it's so weird to me, but... When I tell you there's something that, like, you need to capitalize on this whole slime thing. Because it's the bit for, like, basically between the ages right. of, like, 7 and 12. Right. I think it's the big. And adults are doing it. Right. It was pretty cool. I mean, once I actually played with the slime, <laughs> right. it was cool. But, yeah, that is another thing which is interesting about YouTube. I think some things carry over and you can say, yeah, that's a TV show. Go make that person, you know, 
um, work on something which is like way bigger. And this could be a huge, big, expensive TV show. And then there's some things like slime making where it's like <laughs> you don't really need much more than an iPhone and the ingredients. And somebody's got a good personality talking about it. Yeah. Uh, so well, that's a that's a good point. So what is an example of where you saw something kind of in its rawest form and said that we can blow that out, spend a lot of money and make um, it a show? Well, that's basically what YouTube Originals first year was all about. Okay. I mean, we have done 31 shows so far. Wow. Almost all of them are with big YouTube channels and creators. Mm-hmm. Um, we are doing a lot in development for next year that is some talent that didn't originate on YouTube. Right. But the first year was very much about this is a subscription service. It costs 10 bucks a month. You do get a lot of benefits. It's, it makes YouTube ad-free. You get a music service. You get some product features, not to plug it, but I think it's a lot of value for 10 bucks. Yeah. But you also get these originals. But to get the fans to pay for the original, it needs to feel big and different from what they already get for free. Mm-hmm, right. So, premium, in the, if you will. Premium. But, yeah, it's very hard to define what does, <laughs> yeah, kind of quote-unquote premium, premium mean. YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we talk about, yeah, that a lot. Like, how do we make sure it feels authentic and real? Because that's what made these people so popular is that they do everything themselves. They don't have producers and showrunners telling them what to do. They do everything And so I think that translates to the audience. And we've talked to, you know, fans of YouTube channels, and they feel like, well, why would I like actors? They're just reading lines. YouTubers, that's actually them. So that's very different, and people feel like they have a relationship with the YouTube creators that you don't get with reality stars. Right. And so in terms of, like— They're accessible. Very accessible. They talk to their audiences like they would talk to friends. Right. It's different. So as we're doing these shows, we have to be careful that we don't suddenly make it feel like— a overproduced TV show where suddenly what costs a lot more money isn't actually as real as what was on YouTube. Right. So we, I think we've done that really well on a few. So a couple examples, like on the unscripted side specifically, um, we have a transgender creator, Gigi Gorgeous is the channel. You know, what she had done on her channel was, you know, it was a fascinating channel where she did document a lot of what she was going through, but ultimately she was also doing a lot of interviews and challenges and makeup tutorials. So we had Barbara Koppel actually direct a documentary about Gigi Gorgeous. And in that, she talked to her dad. She talked to her brothers. They went, you know, back, you know, behind the scenes on home videos nobody had ever seen. So now we had like an 80-minute documentary about Gigi Gorgeous, which for fans was, you know, a much more revealing look at everything she had been through. Uh, and then in addition, it's a great film. It was nominated for like an MTV Movie Award. And it and did it go Sundance. like in the, in, the, in the theater route also? Um, a little bit. Like it was at film festivals. It didn't debut in, in theaters like nationwide or anything. But yeah, it, it premiered at Sundance. And it's something which, you know, you don't have to be a Gigi Gorgeous fan to like that story. Right. Um, but then there's other examples like... Uh, Michael Stevens, uh, who actually was the first person I ever hired for Barely Political. Have you ever heard that name, Michael Stevens? He's great. You should look him up, and your nine-year-old would probably like his videos, but so would you. He does basically like 20 to 30-minute science videos every couple of weeks. He gets three to four million views a video, so, you know, bigger numbers than most TV shows. Right. And (laughs) really just sort of smart, him talking to the camera, going into the specifics of this really fascinating science is subjects. he a scientist? Like, what's his background? No, he was at University of Chicago, and he was doing uh, remixes on YouTube on his own. <laughs> and he did one called Barack Bollywood when I was uh, running Barely Political. And so I started emailing back and forth with him and basically said, would you want to move to New York and edit political videos for us? So he was the first person I ever hired. 
And then he did that for us for about two years. And then at some point, Next New Networks, Barely Political was the biggest, you know, kind of network that was, uh, as part of Next New Networks. Right. And so because I was overseeing programming, they were saying, like, you really need to have a lot of big networks for this company to build value. So uh, Michael took a concept that he wanted to do, Vsauce, and create it as a totally separate channel from Barely Political. Um, but it was an interesting look at how YouTube is very different, I think, than TV because he hosted the first couple episodes. He had never been on camera before, really. And initially, I think we thought, well, let's just do that until we find a host host. And then people just loved him. And that was fine because he was so passionate about the subject. It was way better him writing his own material and putting those out. So Michael Stevens, 11 million subscribers, audience like all ages. Wow. And he... Uh, came to us at YouTube Red. I'm kind of skipping some steps yeah, here. Yeah, so, and I wanted okay. to ask about that too, but go ahead. Well, basically, so Vsauce um, was part of Next New Networks, became a breakout hit channel. Got it. Um, really proud of everything that that accomplished. I mean, he's substitute teachers and teachers play him in class. Wow. And he's, you know, won science awards and he sells out, you know, arenas now. And he's just a really fascinating story. But he was part of YouTube, worked here while he ran the channel, then spun off and Vsauce became independent. And then Vsauce did a YouTube original with us called Mindfield. So his channel is him in front of a black wall and he pulls in different images and tells a story. Mindfield was produced with IPC and that is him doing experiments. So the first episode, he put himself in isolation for 72 hours and... Uh, I, I assume you know the IPC guys. Eli I had them on. Aaron. I did a two-parter with them because we had such a good talk. We ended up talking oh, wow. for like an hour and forty minutes. Oh wow! Love okay. those guys. Yeah. Are we getting close to two-parter night? <laughs> no, we got, not we got, yet. We got away. <laughs> right, no. no, reserve for those guys. Those guys have a much uh, well with two people history. also. Yeah, two we just it was, we got very lost in conversation. And no, that's cool. So they uh, they they partnered with Michael. And, and how did that happen? Like, I want to really break that down because yeah. I think it would be interesting to producers. Yeah. Like, did you knew those guys and you wanted to partner him with them? Or did they go to Michael um, and say we want to do this show? In that case, Michael was represented by WME. Okay. Um, so I was working with his agent, Ryan, on what could we do that's really big with Michael. And then uh, when they had this idea, I think the show was originally called Psych Lab or something. Okay. Um, Ryan sent us a list of production companies that Michael could potentially partner with, and he met with a handful of them and really hit it off with the IPC guys. Yeah, the bake-off, we call it. Yeah, I don't know how often that, you know, yeah, happens it does happen. With the, yeah, it does happen. We, um, I had on Jason Carbone. Do you know mm, him? Yeah. And, and, yeah, so that happened with the Barely Famous show. It was the same oh, thing. Really? They had the idea. The girls had the idea. They right. went around to five or six companies, and yeah, they yeah. ultimately, it's who, you, it's who you click with because, you know, most of them are going to do a really right. good job. So yeah, it's like, yeah. who do you want to hang out with every day? Yeah, That's what yeah. I always say if I'm trying to court somebody. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, and I could see Eli and Aaron. But Michael, because yeah. I've known Michael for a long time, he yeah. did call me and he's like, I, I like a lot of these guys. Yeah. What do you think? Like, they're all nice. I've only met with them each for an hour. You know, so, so that was something which I think a lot of the YouTube creators that we work with are, you know, figuring out because it's so critical finding the right showrunner and director and production company. Um, how do they make sure they're, they're making those decisions right? I, and I actually took out a TV show with Barely Political in 2010 um, because the Barely Political channel actually sort of changed. We did politics till Obama won, and then when he won, nobody really cared about politics, <laughs> and our numbers nosedived, and it was really scary, and we had to wow. let go of a couple people. Did you anticipate and, that? Um, well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, 
it was just because everything, I don't know, I'm sure you remember, and like that year between Palin and McCain <laughs> and Obama, it was just every day that was the main story. So we were putting out political videos every day pretty much. Right. And then when we switched it, I remember being, um, you know, kind of interviewed a couple times and be like, well, no, politics, of course, there's still Congress and there's going to be the, but I sort of knew right. we're not going to be making viral videos about Congress plus there wasn't as much to make fun of, I felt like, you know, with just an Obama presidency. So we totally changed the channel and made it all about pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, started a series called The Key of Awesome, which this guy, Mark Douglas, who had been working with us for a while, created. And The Key of Awesome was basically um, parodies about music and movies and all that. And then that blew up. We actually did uh, about like a billion of our first two billion views were the key of awesome. Right. And that's what it is now. Like if you Google barely political, right. it's turned right. into Right, which is key confusing, awesome. right? Because, right. Um, I mean, I, I get why Mark switched it. So yeah. Mark is now running barely political and I'm working at Google doing programming and working on Google initiatives. And I still technically oversee barely political. But at that point, I've kind of turned it over to him and do what you want with the channel. And so he rebranded it, Key of Awesome, made it all about music, and, uh, and, and yeah, that's still a channel that he runs. But in 2010, Mark and I went out with Dave Becky and Three Arts and pitched a show, and I had never pitched a show and knew nothing about the process, <laughs> um, and I think it was called Awesome Tonight, and the idea was it was like a spoof of Entertainment Tonight, <laughs> and every sketch would be baked into these two ridiculously good host, sort of like Mario Lopez type. Right. So there was like, we got Miley Cyrus with this exclusive and we do that sketch. And we got, you yeah. know, sneak peek at this trailer and we do a trailer. Did so, you have the annoying sound effects and this and all that That stuff. was kind of the idea, yeah. yeah. So we we put that, and you know, I did it in like PowerPoint because that was my background right. um, to sort of, uh, and not that we don't still get PowerPoint decks, but like now sizzle. that I've taken three or 400 pitches being in this role for two yeah. years, I see everything that we did wrong. And I can see why people didn't buy it because at the time we went to, you know, E and MTV and Comedy Central and everywhere. And, uh, you know, in my mind, it was like this is a, a clean format. And then when I look back on it now, we didn't really have um, a long term plan on where the show would go. We didn't have anybody attached to it, writers and all that. And so we didn't sell that show. Um, but it was it, yeah, that was a good experience. And that was in 2010. And now, like I said, now that I've been in this role for a few years, I can see some of the mistakes we made. Well, I have to follow up on that because yeah. in your role now, I mean, what does make the perfect pitch for you? What's going to make you buy something? Um, well, because it's a, a subscription service, you know, a lot of it is what I was saying before. Like, how, how is this really different enough from what people get for free? How does it have that, you know, sort of uh, immediate response of, I, I have to see that. I'm, I'm either... I'm obsessed with the talent or yeah. the concept is so cool. And I guess it's kind of cliche that everybody would say, like, we're looking for big ideas and things that people are going to be talking about. But in our case, that is uniquely challenging because on YouTube, you already get for free John Oliver and Saturday Night Live and all these amazing YouTube creators. So to get people to pay for something, it, I think it has to get over a certain hurdle. And sometimes that's things like the Gigi Gorgeous doc where it feels like, okay, People are used to paying for an 80-minute film. Right. Sometimes it's the talent involved. Uh, and then sometimes the YouTube creators have such a big fan base, and we're doing some ensemble shows, that we have a great starting point because— right. Built-in like, audience. We did a scripted-unscripted hybrid by his creator, Joey Graceffa, but he had 10 other YouTube creators on with him, and they have 
huge fan bases that are obsessed with them. So you have all these different creators on a show, and it feels more like an event than just your typical collab video. Something sure. special. If you have a nine-year-old, I'm sure you've seen collabs yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, we know about collabs. We know about collabs. Um, so yeah, trying to find something special. So that's on the YouTube Red side. How do we build a, a subscription service, which is like the must-have subscription for millennials? Then we announced Thursday at our upfronts that we're now doing original programming in the AVOD space. So ad-supported originals, where the goal is less about drive, well, not about driving subscription at all. It's more about having these big pop culture hits that we feel like the world can be talking about. We have billions of viewers on YouTube. We have the potential to have shows, you know, that, w- that we're producing that are at a scale and level of popularity that maybe TV can't achieve. So th- we announced our first seven on Thursday, and those are a fitness show with Kevin Hart. We're doing a documentary about Demi Lovato, a live special with Katy Perry, and a show with Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, and we're also doing a, a music show with Ryan Seacrest Production Company. Uh, so those are all more kind of, I guess, from the world of traditional talent, although they have huge YouTube huge. audiences. I mean, right. Ellen has... Oh you know, God. 300 whatever million views a month, yeah. and Demi Lovato has 20 million subscribers, and Kevin Hart is a social star. So, And it's funny about Kevin Hart having a fitness show because he goes to my gym, oh, and really? he's a maniac. I mean, I'm sure you know. Unbelievable Like shape, he, liter- yeah. he literally, sometimes when I've come in at like 8 a.m., he's running to the gym. Like I don't know where he lives, <laughs> right. but he's actually, or maybe he's just doing laps around the gym, but yeah. he's outside running. And oh, he's, he's just, ripped, I know. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I <laughs> usually is. think of stand-up comedy as something where you sort of like, you know, the, a lot of times a comedian will have sort of the audience relatability and yeah, Kevin Hart gets out there and he's just a rock star. He right? doesn't care. I mean, he's, stage, yeah. I think he's aspirational. I think that's his appeal now, oh, which totally, is like, yeah. you know, he came from nothing. Philly guy, right? Oh, love that. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I saw him at the amazing. Laugh House, which is the yeah, comedy club there a few times. And, um, and he crushed and it was before he was super famous. Right, you and knew. So, so as part of the uh, announcement of those shows, so those were the five that were with people who are big on YouTube not YouTube creators. And we also have two shows with huge YouTube talent. So Rhett and Link have a daily talk show. They do 2 million views per video. We're blowing that talk show out and making it much bigger for this program. And then we're doing a variety show with the slow-mo guys. So seven shows all being released in the fall and then some in 2018, which are not part of YouTube Red and are ad-supported. I feel like it makes total sense because... I mean, I talked about this with a few of the digital people that I've interviewed, which is, you know, the numbers, right? Let's just talk about the yeah. view, the numbers. I mean, yeah. you look at, you know, if, if I'm Ellen or Kevin or Demi or any of these people, like, yeah. I will get way bigger numbers right. on YouTube than I will on any network, right? right. I mean, that's just, yeah, it's kind of hard to there. deny it. And some it, of those shows, you know, like James Corden, and I love his show, but yes, carpool karaoke's I think are averaging fifty or sixty million views on those videos. So a lot of the TV shows can reach audiences on YouTube with their TV formats. And then yeah, we like the idea of them also having original programming on YouTube that's just for YouTube. And it's really crazy. Some of the channels which are getting you know two, three, four hundred million views a month, including some of the ones I mentioned like Rhett and Link and Vsauce, don't necessarily hit the radar of people in our industry or people in their 30s and 40s. But when you talk about people in their, you know, teenagers, 20s, they're obsessed with these channels. And it's a different, yeah, it is a different type of content. I, it's almost closer to like a Howard Stern sort of thing yeah. where you hear them every day and then you sort of need your fix of that person. Right. Yeah. And I feel like um, it's interesting that you said that about it's not on our radar. And that's why, you know, like 
having a kid in a way is sometimes right. the best because you know we were talking earlier about Jeff Palm, the, right. the Pomeranian that's yeah, like yeah. taking the world by storm. I would have no clue about this little right. dog yeah, yeah. <laughs> if he's really a dog. Um, <laughs> But musically, like right. musically. So is musically considered a competitor to YouTube now? Like, how do you look at no, the Lively's and so. the Snapchats? It's pretty different. I mean, a lot of our big channels are using musically to, you know, find new fans and everything. But right. I wouldn't say they're competitors. Certainly not on the original programming side. It's not right. like They'll never people can. are taking their big unscripted shows to musically and YouTube. Do you um, think they will? Musically, like, we'll get into that. Yeah, content. I'm just wondering. Or Snapchat? I have no idea. Aren't they Snapchat getting into is that? a little bit more, and certainly Facebook is. Right. But yeah, I don't. I don't think Musically as much. I mean, I, I would say, um, you know, of of those uh, creators who are um, blowing up on YouTube, it's funny because sometimes just exactly what you said, the executive has the kids that's obsessed, and then they're the ones. You know, Brian Robbins at Awesomeness will tell yeah. the story of like, oh, this is all my kids watch. I'm going in this direction, or even Dave Becky. When he represented us, the only reason he even reached out to us was because his kids were watching The Key of Awesome. And so I think he was like, oh, there, maybe there's something here. My kids are obsessed. So, And we've gotten a lot of pitches like that where people come in and they either say, my kids would think it's so cool I'm at YouTube. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, Or um, you know, they're pitching shows and they actually know about the creators uh, because they you know, have done their homework and realized that, oh, if you're, you know, if you're of a certain demo, this is where you're watching most of your content. And I, you know, I'm not that demo, but I do watch more than half of what I watch is on YouTube. So I, I don't think it's just for a younger audience, but I think that's where you sometimes have these stars that haven't hit the radar yet of some people, but their fan bases are much bigger than kind of traditional talent. Yeah, I, I agree. So go, I want to go back to, to your journey, yes. as we say. So, um, so once you kind of left Barely Political and it right. became Key of Awesomeness. Right. And then, so then that's when you came to YouTube? No, no. So, okay. <laughs> there was uh, an in-between there. Yeah. So in 2011, Next New Networks was one of the big digital content companies. And YouTube actually acquired all of Next New Networks um, to be an in-house uh, group, which would work on strategy, how creators can build their audience. It was sort of instead of building this group at YouTube, let's acquire a company that spent five years doing exactly this. Smart. As part of that acquisition, YouTube actually acquired a handful of channels like Barely Political and Vsauce. And so when I moved over to YouTube in 2011, I was overseeing Barely Political, but then also getting involved in other initiatives, including uh, advising big YouTube channels, whether it was like brands or media companies or individual creators, also building some frameworks that would be more scalable so we could put out, you know, an article about here, the 10 fundamental things you need to do to succeed on YouTube. And then I also actually had an investment fund to do more experimental things on YouTube where the goal was to sort of learn what works and why it works. So that was in 2012 and 13 that I was doing that program. It was called the Creator Innovation Program. And some of those projects were really successful, including some funding that we did with Rent and Link and with BuzzFeed. And so when we did uh, announce that we were going to do original programming in 2015, I actually moved out of the YouTube, it was called the Next Lab, that's what Next New Networks turned into, and moved over to the YouTube Originals team and ran comedy for YouTube Originals. So the Next Lab, which built you know, the YouTube spaces that we're in now and continued to serve as a group to empower creators and scale all this knowledge about what works, um, it still exists. But I just moved over to the Originals team 
to start what would be our you know first real venture into funding original shows. We had funded channels before, which was more about um, giving money to build an entire network and you know hours and hours of programming. Whereas with this YouTube originals, it was more about let's pick 25 shows and build a subscription service on those. Interesting. So you started out in com. It started out as head of comedy, right? right. And yep. then how did it transition into a sort of the bigger role um, or more well, broader role? Yeah, we just had three groups, scripted, comedy, and unscripted. Okay. Um, the person who was overseeing unscripted for us went over to a company called Vessel. And then I was overseeing comedy and unscripted. We had somebody overseeing scripted. And then the amount of projects that would fit in comedy or unscripted became a little bit overwhelming, especially once we announced that we were going to do some ad-supported shows. Right. And so that was kind of a, a tough decision because most of YouTube is unscripted, as I'm sure you know. There's a handful of scripted shows, but for the most part, it's unscripted. And that's where my background was. So in that comedy world, I still do, you know, talk and sketch and stand up. And there's things that are in the comedy space that I'm overseeing, like the Kevin Hart Project is a fitness show and he's going to go do a different workout with a different group and surprise them every time. And, you know, that's comedy, but I'm not doing our scripted comedies anymore. So some of the projects that I originally developed here, like that Dan Harmon project with the Game Grumps, um, now is handled by the scripted team and I oversee all of our unscripted programming. So cool. So your boss is Suzanne... Suzanne Daniels. Suzanne Daniels. So she came from traditional linear TV. So was yeah, that? she's kind of legendary. She started the you know WB programming, and she's been doing this for a long time. And yeah, came in with a very different perspective than we had ever had here. That's what I was going to ask. So I would think that in certain ways that would be hugely beneficial to kind of bring that you know linear yeah. mindset in terms of like how you get shows developed, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and to series and, and, and et cetera. But I also think it would be a huge learning curve, you know, right. for her, like, you know, in terms of how different it yeah. is, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, fortunately, she's really smart and understands that there's things that she knows inside and out and then other nuances to YouTube that when she first came on board, um, she was very happy to say, you know, let me know which direction we should go in based on this, you know, YouTube channel maybe I haven't heard of before. Uh, now that she's been here a year and a half or so. It's interesting because she knows all the YouTubers. She knows the language of views and watch time and our algorithm. And she's kind of fluent in YouTube at this stage. But yeah, I definitely think that it's been uh, interesting to see how everything she's learned about storytelling and building hit shows translates to YouTube, where ultimately we want to do the same things, but we want to put a spin on it where it feels like we're doing something different than the TV networks are doing. I was just going to ask you that, which is when you do your spiel and your producer meetings, et cetera, what right. is it in terms of like why this would work for YouTube but nobody else or why right. you should bring this to YouTube? What is that um, spiel? I mean, some of it's very specific. Like I think because it's YouTube, we can do things, uh, you know, in terms of like interactivity and audience involvement that even other digital networks can't right now, like, you know, Netflix and Amazon um, you know, they're, they're uh, not traditional TV networks, but they also don't have the community there where people are commenting and interacting and all that. So sometimes it's that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's the shows and the format length. So we can do things on YouTube that aren't necessarily stuck on, like, let's do 22 and 44 minutes. We can kind of play with that. But ultimately, it's more, I think, about recognizing that 
We have a YouTube audience, which is used to content that is really authentic and genuine and organic and all those kind of cliche words. But it is true. Uh, if we're going to do something for this audience in the unscripted space, it really better feel real. They have, you know, I think an expectation that if it's on YouTube, we're not going to take whether again, it's Kevin Hart and Demi Lovato or a YouTube star that when we produce something with them, you're going to get to see a real side of them. You're not going to get this really packaged, overproduced content. So, so yeah. you wouldn't do like a, a game show or a, or a competition show guess, that's got more Well, we are doing competition shows. I think we're just trying to be really careful about how do we make sure that How do you do it? So we do have a competition show. And it's a good example, I think, of how we're doing a format that uh, is unique to YouTube. Every week, the episode centers around one music artist. They had said, hey, YouTube, cover my song. So Katy Perry is on the show, Demi Lovato, Jason Derulo, the Backstreet Boys. They all have their own episode. And they say, YouTube, cover my song. The whole community can participate, but they're not participating um, to become like get a record deal. They're participating uh, essentially to do a once in a lifetime collaboration with the actual star. So the winner gets to do a music video with Demi Lovato. So that is something where it's unique to YouTube, I think, because there's a few different payoffs along the way when they meet the artist and when they're rehearsing and when they actually do the collaboration. But it also definitely leans into things that, uh, you know, work with traditional music competitions where you have that big pressure moment where they have to audition and see if they're going to win. Uh, so that's a good example, I think, of competition that is with Endemol and Ryan Seacrest Productions and definitely as a whole team building the show. But we're trying to make sure it feels unique to YouTube. Yeah. And in terms of um, the production process, I mean, one of the things that producers are saying is that it's so refreshing to work with the sort of the digital, you know, Hulu and Netflix, because A, they usually go right to series. Right. B, they don't bother the producers as much in terms right. of getting their hands in every little thing. Yeah. Is YouTube sort of in that same bucket? Uh, I like to think we're very creator friendly. Yeah. I mean, we, it's not like every single thing we do goes to series. We've definitely bought treatments and pilots. Um, but you know, from my perspective, especially with the YouTube creators, they know their audience so well, it'd be really foolish of me to come in and give them a whole bunch of notes on how to change the format. Uh, and yeah, ultimately because we have the advantage of, um, you know, YouTube channels that already have an audience on YouTube, they, they often know what their fans will like. So we did a show with Liza Koshy. I think she'll be a, a huge star and everyone will know she is and, you know, five, 10 years or whatever. And, and she already has a massive following. But when she did her show, it was fun, you know, seeing her come in and have such a vision for what she thinks the show should be and exactly what her fans will want. And she's, I think she's 21. Um, so, you know, she comes in with that. And we've had that a few times where even meeting them in person, you realize, wow, this, this person really understands what their channel's all about. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lily Singh, but we did a documentary with her. Same thing. I'd never been actually in a, a business meeting with her. So it was interesting when she came in, just seeing, oh, she's like a force of nature. She's telling exactly what the set should look like, exactly what the opening thing should look like. And that was, and again, another person, I'm sure she's in her early 20s and just so smart. And even though her channel is a bunch of short sketches, you see, oh, okay, this is somebody who really has, and now she's done books and tours and everything else, uh, who really has a vision of what she wants it to be. So that's, that's cool to see. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like what kind of puts traditional producers on their heels now is exactly what you're saying, which is 
these kids, essentially, right. they get it. They know how to make content. They know right. how to market content. They know how to get views. And it's, in a way, it feels like it's going to put us all out of jobs eventually. Right. Do you think that's true? <laughs> <laughs> say, don't say yes. No. Uh, <laughs> no, because I, on the other hand, we've had some great partnerships where I think YouTube creators came in with ideas. And again, our our shows are not all just YouTube creators, but a lot of the experience we've had so far with what you're talking about um, have been uh, indicative that a lot of times putting together, you know, Joey Graceffa, who does understand his audience, but certainly didn't know how to do a show set in a mansion that was a competition unscripted scripted hybrid, you know, him matching up with Brian Graydon and them really hitting it off was cool to see because Brian's been doing this for a long time and really understood how to create a format out of it. And I think Joey appreciated that. And, you know, the IPC minefield example is a good one. And a lot of the things we're doing with YouTube creators are about how do we find those people who have been, you know, whether it's a showrunner or a director doing bigger formats and helping them do something more ambitious than they could do on their own, which a lot of YouTube creators want to do exactly that. They've been doing everything for five, 10 years, lighting, sound, writing. And so having a team to build something is something that I think that, that they are, they're looking for. Uh, and then there's other projects where there aren't YouTubers involved. And there is, I think, a role for us to play less about giving a lot of notes and changing things and more about just sort of saying, look, this is how a YouTube audience differs a bit from a traditional audience. And sometimes it's just the way the platform works. Like scripted series are unscripted. For us, the first 30 seconds are really important. I'm sure you have watched YouTube you've just sort of clicked on something and then you can give up on it yep. in 30 seconds or you yeah. can get hooked and you're watching it for three hours. Right. So, you know, even on these series, I think it's important for us to think about how do we quickly give people a way to, to, to stick with the series because it's not exactly like Netflix where you might, you know, search for a while, find something, and then you're going to give it, a, you know, at least an episode maybe. For us, uh, we have... Uh, a lot of shows where I think they're successful in part because we hook them on the first episode and then they watch the full series. Yeah. So having said everything you've said, where mm -hmm. do you personally think the whole thing is going in terms of content? <laughs> the whole, the thing. whole thing. The whole thing. Um, well. Uh, Will there be traditional TV in five years? Uh, yeah, I guess it depends on what traditional TV would be defined as. I mean, like like I was saying, I watch now that YouTube has YouTube TV. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's basically, uh, you know, way on YouTube to watch NBC and CBS and all the networks. Um, you know, I watch almost everything on YouTube. Uh, so I don't know, you know, at what point we're counting Netflix or Amazon or HBO and what's traditional and what's not traditional. Right. Uh, I think that there's, you know, I did... I, with, with a bigger answer like this, I'm trying not to talk in cliches about stories will always be important. And, <laughs> you know, it's really uh, critical for us to um, make sure that when when we make something, you know, it's got to be good because there's so many more choices now. But that is the truth, that ultimately we don't have a time slot to put this in. Right. There's more money being spent on content than ever and more, you know, things competing for people's time. So it's really genuinely critical for us, and I think, you know, moving forward for people to find ways to stand out. And then, yeah, I, I got to imagine that this is a unique moment in time where there's more shows at this at this level um, than there's ever been and maybe ever will be. But maybe not. Maybe there'll be 10 more subscription services over the next 10 years. 
It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. So I have sort of my stock questions that I end with. um, And here we go. Here we go. What is your proudest professional accomplishment? Proudest professional accomplishment? Uh, I guess I was most proud of building the Barely Political team from scratch. That was really exciting, uh, especially in the moment uh, to have something where we were making videos and then a few days later, millions of people were talking about them and it it felt like we were a small part of a bigger story of how people could participate in politics and comedy in a way they couldn't before. And it was just so fun. I mean, we had, I, I thought, a really smart team. We had these guys, Mark and Rusty, who were hilarious, and Michael's really funny and a great editor, and this director, Tom. And it was just seven or eight of us making content and feeling like, in some ways, you know, this is this is the future and we're a part of it. And at the same time, uh, feeling like we we have fans. This is crazy. I don't. I was working at an ad agency three months ago, you know, writing creative briefs. And now we're getting all these emails about, you know, what are you guys going to do next? And I love your stuff. So that was something I was very proud of. Well, yeah, I'll just go with that. I think that's, that's a good one. Yeah. It's huge. Do you have any regrets? Um, any regrets? I do kind of regret not getting in on this election. I have to say I was so busy <laughs> yeah. and I didn't do anything. And then now I thought, oh, maybe I could have come up with that perfect video that everybody would have, you know. I don't know that I anything get into my would politics, have. But I don't I, think that anything would have helped this train um, wreck. <laughs> I'm not afraid know. of it. Was a, it was a close race. Uh, so do you, uh, this is kind of an ironic question, I guess, to ask, but I usually ask what are your favorite, your top three unscripted reality okay. shows that yeah. you watch? Yeah. Oh, top three unscripted reality shows. Um, not sure what qualifies. I, I watch Seth Meyers, like, every day almost yeah that qualifies that qualifies yeah okay so he's on uh you know he's in my youtube queue every day and i think he's great he's genius genius um i will uh let's see i should pick a youtube channel because that's (laughs) reality uh i watch uh i do watch a lot of um phil defranco's show partially because he talks about our business a lot but partially he's really smart and he just started his own independent network after being part of the Discovery Network for a while. So I'm excited to see where he goes with that. And also, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Casey Neistat, but another guy I watch all the time. And then, okay, last reality thing that I watch. Um, I mean, I, I love the ESPN 30 for 30 series, um, sports fan. I think there's been a few formats like that where it's really impressive. Like once I, I think I've watched, I don't know, 80% of them. Like once I got into the series, I wanted to watch all of them. I was that way about behind the music too. I remember watching the Millie Vanilli one and then watching any behind the music I would watch. So it's I like those kind of formats. Yeah. Um, I always say about behind the music and actually 30 for 32 because I'm not a huge sports fan necessarily, but yeah. I love that series because again, going back to the cliche, a great story is a great story. Right. And I always say like the Motley Crue behind the music is one of the best, you know, I could not care a good less one. about that band or yeah. the music. And that was, I will never forget that. Uh, I could care about that band a lot. <laughs> I like them. And I love that story. Yeah. I like that show a lot. Yeah. It was, is that back? It is um, back I feel right? like it came back. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's back. I got to catch up on that. It's good. That's a good one. All right. Well, this was so amazing and informative and fascinating, honestly. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I want to talk about uh, Philadelphia because you spent some time there, but we can do that yeah. maybe in future we'll podcasts down the road. We'll do, we'll do just the Philly podcast. Great. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Thanks.